0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm pleased to have here today with me Dr. Adrian Scott, who's professor of ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins, director of the Retina Fellowship at the Wilmer Eye Institute. Welcome to Retina Synthesis, Adrian.
1: Thank you, Carmen. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you.
0: Uh, Adrian is one of the world's authorities on sickle cell retinopathy, and that's today's topic we're going to talk about develop new developments in the therapy of sickle cell retinopathy today. But just to get our audience up to speed, what is sickle cell retinopathy? Uh,
1: sickle cell retinopathy are just in a broad term, the retinal vascular changes that we observe as a patient uh, has a lifelong diagnosis of sickle cell disease. So Sickle cell disease is the hemoglobinopathy um, that affects the beta-globin genes, the hemoglobin molecules. And what happens is that there is a lifetime defect in oxygen transport and leads to this cumulative episodic kind of tissue damage. And this happens in every organ system. And we're very in a unique position as ophthalmologists, especially retina specialists, because we can actually visualize... the the vascular changes in vivo. So, you know, sickle cell retinopathy is very broad, but the way I look at it is any sort of retinal vascular change that we can observe that's related to systemic sickle cell disease.
0: What are the retinal vascular changes that we observe? Uh,
1: Dr. Mort Goldberg, one of my mentors, actually did a lot of the pioneering work, and sickle cell retinopathy has primarily been known as a peripheral retinopathy. So, there's the stage one, you can observe the peripheral arterial occlusions. Typically, they affect, again, they're at least more visible in the retinal periphery. You can see these kind of sclerotic arterioles. Uh, Stage two is, you know, when these arterioles kind of anastomose and have these arterial venular anastomoses. And then the stage three uh, is the uh, neovascularization that develops pathologically just from, you know, progressive ischemia and vascular remodeling. And this is where The sickle cell retinopathy, kind of the the hallmark of the disease, CFAN neovascularization has been described. And, you know, this part at this stage is really, really where you want to be looking and identifying the CFAN neovascular regions. I'm sure we'll get into that later um, about how to recognize them and what to do to keep them from progressing. In stage four, obviously, if those blood vessels kind of rupture and cause vitreous hemorrhage, And then stage five, unfortunately, is if if everything progresses with the the neovascularization, potentially causing retinal detachment, can be either tractional from contraction of the um, neovascular complexes onto the retina, pulling on the posterior hyloids, can either be tractional or combination, tractional regmatogenous is what we see often. Now, interestingly, we're also now understanding more that the macula is affected. Um, so sickle cell maculopathy is also well-recognized with vascular changes affecting the macula. You don't get the neovascularization that you see in the retinal periphery, but you do certainly get the capillary dropout, um, the abnormal vasculature, and that's been also a very interesting area of study as well.
0: Do, do these patients get macular edema?
1: They don't get macular edema. It's, it's very interesting. They never really get macular edema like a diabetic patient.
0: And, um,
1: you know, sickle cell disease is actually one of the retinopathies of a truly ischemic retinopathy as opposed to being an ischemic and exudative retinopathy, such as diabetic retinopathy. So instead of macular edema, in fact, they get macular thinning and atrophy and ischemia. And my, my theory behind that, we've learned from why well, that happens pathophysiologically, patho- is what we've learned from studies using OCT angiography. So basically, what we see are uh, decreased vasculature in the macula, and that can even precede retinal thinning on OCT. So basically, these patients kind of get these repetitive vaso-occlusions that cause loss of vascular density in the macula just cumulatively from birth. We've seen this in, in, in the pediatric population. And then our theory is that this happens over and over again, causing uh, progressive ischemia and then subsequent tissue thinning. So that's why, instead of macular edema, sickle cell patients are known to have macular thinning on OCT.
0: What's the typical profile of a patient with sickle cell retinopathy that you're seeing these days, if there is such a thing as a typical profile?
1: That, that's an excellent question. That's that's one of the reasons why the disease is so fascinating to me because such a heterogeneous um, presentation, you know, I'll say you know, approximately 90% of patients have no vision phenomenon, don't have a vision loss that we really know of. I mean, they, they don't have necessarily the neovascularization. Um, that is something that's very dependent upon the patient's genotype. So we know from the work of Dr. Goldberg and then others to uh, watch carefully for patients who have the different genotypes such as the hemoglobin Fc or other sort of variant hetero, heterozygous genotypes because they're actually at higher risk for progression of a development and progression of the neovascularization, whereas the homozygous patients are known to have more of the systemic sequelae such as the history of strokes, renal failure, um, you know, lung disease, such as pulmonary hypertension, more frequent vaso systemic crises. They're sicker systemically But what we see in the retinal disease is usually less advanced than those patients with hemoglobin SC and some of the thalassemia genotypes because they don't really sick systemically. They may not even be under hematology care, but it's those SC patients where we can look and see um, neovascularization more regularly at a young age. So the patient that we usually see um, who has the eye disease or pathology uh, with retinopathy is usually the younger patients. They can develop among age 20, really starts around adolescence, and really can progress age 20 to 30. So it's a heterogeneous type of disorder. You can see anything from zero retinopathy to people who show up for the first time with full-blown vitreous hemorrhage and retinal detachment, and they may not even have known they had a hemoglobinopathy systemically. Well,
0: let's talk now about how new developments in retinal imaging and therapy have impacted the management of this disease. Uh, You mentioned a little bit about OCT angiography, but these days we have wide field fundus imaging, wide field angiography. Uh, How are we using these new tools and how have they affected our management of these patients?
1: I think the novel imaging techniques such as OCT angiography and ultra wide field imaging really enhance our understanding of the pathophysiologically, uh, pathophysiology of sickle cell retinopathy. Um, I am a big fan of these imaging techniques, and I do them regularly in my practice to really try to understand the particular patient's uh, ischemic burden, um, progression of ischemia over time, and to be able to identify subtle neovascularization in the retinal periphery. Uh, we did a study um, recently where we queried retina specialists and asked, you know, how do you Evaluate and treat your patients with sickle cell retinopathy, and it's a mixed bag. So people can retina specialists do everything from just exam alone. Um, it's historically, you know, we're kind of thinking that okay, if there's neovascularization, that's what you really want to identify and treat if needed, and we can do that with our clinical exam alone and a good indirect ophthalmoscopy exam. But we do find that the retinal imaging, such as ultra-wide field fundus imaging and fluorescein angiography is much better for identifying subtle neovascularization and and tracking ischemia over time. So I'm a big fan of those regularly, um, particularly for my patients that are at higher risk, and I'm really watching them carefully to see if I need to intervene if their disease is progressing. Um, I also also like to use OCT regularly on my sickle cell patients to track their macular thinning over time.
0: what about OCT angiography and wide-field OCT? We can now do some pretty interesting wide-field OCT. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And that's really exciting
1: because uh, we know where sickle cell patients tend to have the maculopathy. It's not necessarily centered at the foveal center. So usually what you'll see is this capillary dropout. in on, You can see it on OCTA very commonly, usually affecting like just the temporal macula, like the, the field three. Um, from the you kind know, of the ETDRS field. So just temporal to the, to the macula. And the reason why is that's the watershed zone for the, the macular vasculature uh, where patients can get this repetitive vaso-occlusions and subsequent thinning. That's shown beautifully on OCTA. I, I do like to image my patients with OCTA, although I'm still primarily using it as a research tool. Um, to your point, it's absolutely uh, poised. Uh, this disease is poised to be um, perfect for imaging with wide-field OCT and OCT angiography, um, for example, because the pathology, again, is not centered on the macula. It's um, a little bit temporal to the macula. And the wider the field of imaging to, to document the macular vasculature, the better in this disease. So those things are still
0: used as research tools, but I think they're gonna have importance in the future. And what about therapy? Uh, we've got anti-VEGF, we've got... Uh... Some enhanced laser technology. What t- can you comment about how treatment modalities have impacted the management of these eyes?
1: Absolutely. So it's it, it, it's great to go back to a lot of the work that Dr. Goldberg and others have done because you know they showed that good old scattered laser photocoagulation is really the tried and true gold standard uh, intervention that we have to this day to be able to decrease the progression of CFAN neovascularization, so the Goldberg Stage 3. So I still rely heavily on that gold standard, the C-FAN uh, gold standards, the scatter laser photocoagulation, which I apply when I see any neovascularization. Um, I use the ultra wide field floor, uh, imaging, particularly the fluorescent angiogram as a guide to place my scatter laser. I, I think it's invaluable because not only can you Uh, apply laser to the, uh, surround the area of the CFAN neovascular region, you can also use the uh, fluorescent angiogram angiogram to target areas of ischemia. And there has been work, um, even basic science work that shows that a lot of the growth factors that are pro-angiogenic are not only surrounding the CFAN lesion, but also in the ischemic border retina, and maybe even just a little posterior to that. So when I treat I'll use laser to treat ischemic areas to barricade the C band neovascular complexes. And also, I treat a little posterior to that. I don't think we need uh, heavy posterior treatment in these patients. I try to avoid that to preserve their, their visual field, but I will treat just posterior to the uh, ne- neovascular area using the, the FA as the guide.
0: And, you use, yeah. yeah, go right ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I was going to say the um, the anti-VEGF I use pr- primarily as an adjunctive agent. Um, if I feel that the person has had adequate scatter laser and they keep having repetitive vitreous hemorrhage, I like to use the um, maybe an intravitreal bevacizumab as an agent to decrease the neovascularization and decrease their risk of, of this of, of decrease the activity of the neovascularization and decrease the risk of vitreous hemorrhage.
0: So. I- Going back to laser photocoagulation, you use the laser indirect for this, or do you use slit lamp delivery?
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the laser indirect. Um, I, I really do that for almost everything, you know, with the exception of the occasional macular laser for, for various diseases. But in sickle cell, for sure, I like to use the indirect alphamosis and indirect laser to apply my, my treatment.
0: Yeah. So, do you ever treat just ischemia?
1: That is a very good question. I've thought about it. And uh, I don't treat these days just for ischemia. I don't think we have evidence that shows that treating ischemia in itself can prevent neovascularization from forming. We do know for a fact that ischemia is progressive in itself, but we are not 100% certain that it is a precursor for absolute development of neovascularization or that laser can can um, impact that course, So
0: I don't treat for just ischemia. So going back to the anti-VEGFs, um, so how frequently are you using them?
1: Well, I am, I'm, I'm using kind of my own algorithm, and this is not evidence-based. It's kind of what I, I am doing based upon what I see in front of me regarding the patient. Uh, you know, as mentioned earlier, these are a very heterogeneous group of patients, and I use a lot of my judgment based upon how active I feel the neovascularization is. So, for example, if I have a patient in whom I feel like I've done adequate laser or they've had adequate laser elsewhere and they keep having recurrence of vitreous hemorrhage, um, I will add adjunctive um, intravitreal bevacizumab. And I usually do the series of three treatments each, you know, approximately a month apart. And then I bring them back probably at increasing, almost like a treatment extend interval, increasing uh, time frames of six weeks and maybe an eight week and maybe a 10 week And what I use to say whether or not I'm going to retreat is how vascular the C-FAN lesion looks to me and sequential visits. So I rely really heavily on how, you know, red vascular, um, you know, how, how, how kind of engorged those vessels are in the C-FAN lesion. Um, as cell disease actually have, um, involution or auto-infarction of the c lesion. And we don't yet even really know which patients those would be, and, and laser don't, doesn't really impact that. But at some point, they kind of burn out uh, these c vascular regions. So I watch the patient carefully to be able to assess if their lesion looks a little less vascular, and then I may just go and uh, bring them back and treat them on a PRN or as needed basis.
0: So we know that retinal neovascularization and diabetic retinopathy is incredibly sensitive to anti-VEGF therapy. Are CFANS as sensitive?
1: Uh, Yes, they are. I I think that, um, you know, VEGF as with diabetic retinopathy is really just one of the the pro-angiogenic growth factors involved in the cascade. But we do have some evidence, although limited, that anti-VEGF is helpful. And so CFAN neovascular lesions do respond beautifully to... Uh, anti-VEGF treatment. And, you know, I start with just the, you know, good old basic cebacizumab. I think that kind of does the trick in a lot of cases. Um, interest, it, I'm interested in the future to gather more evidence as, as if there's another anti-VEGF agent that may be more durable or, or, you know, a decreased treatment burden. But at this point, I'm just treating with cebacizumab and it seems to work nicely. And that's why I like to use the sequential florist, uh, fundus photo and FA ultra wide field Because you can get a really good idea of how much leakage there is in the CFAM, the vascularization, in response to your treatment. So I really rely heavily upon the imaging to tell me when I need to treat. What about surgery
0: in these eyes?
1: You know, these these eyes, you know, the goal of of treatment, and especially in these eyes, which have a little extra complexity to them, Um, As uh, with the patients who have the systemic sickle cell disease, there's some extra things you have to think about and extra considerations that make surgery challenging. So my main goal in these eyes is to do whatever I can in the clinic to keep them out of the operating room. Um, You know, so that's a combination of laser anti-VegF and managing them in clinic. But, you know, as you, you do have patients that will progress. Um, So I do take to surgery patients that I feel like have continued vitreous hemorrhage despite my management with laser and anti-VegF therapy, Um, you know, particularly if they're monocular or have had a a bad outcome in the other eye or have a high risk of progression and and the other eye has shown me that. So, you know, non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage affecting vision, certainly uh, retinal detachment is an indication. So when the patient has either attraction or attraction regmatogenous detachment, and these patients also have thin retinas and they can get just good old, you know, regmatogenous retinal detachments too in the absence of traction. So it's another thing that people don't really think about a lot with sickle
0: cell disease, but they can get good old just regmatogenous retinal detachments as well. What about, uh, we knew that anterior ischemia is associated with scleral buckling in these eyes. Do we still occasionally do scleral buckling?
1: Yeah, so my, my approach in these patients is to add a scleral buckle if I feel like it would help support the peripheral pathology. Um, these are young patients, uh, you know, so when you're going to see somebody with proliferative cell retinopathy at advanced, unfortunately, it's going to strike the person to their 20s to 30s. So they're going to be spachic. They're going to have um, an attached posterior hyloid or at least partially attached posterior hyloid. Um, In these cases, I do think a buckle can be helpful. And, you know, I'm not really seeing in my hands and in these kind of contemporary times with a good, you know, the vitrectomy and modern buckling techniques, uh, anterior segment ischemia. And some tips that I try to remember to avoid them, uh, to to avoid anterior segment ischemia, is when I do use a pleural buckle, I use a low buckle, kind of a, um, you know, I don't like a high broad element. I usually use a low buckle, such as like a 41 band and use it in a targeted fashion to support that area of pathology. You wanna be careful, you don't pull the buckle too tight, um, but you can use a buckle and they can do
0: fine. So uh, what about uh, systemic management of these patients prior to surgery? What are your tips about that?
1: Well, I'm very fortunate to be at an institute that has a really fantastic and responsive partner in the hematology department. and so. If the patient is under and under their care, I will uh, consult them in advance and kind of ask, well, what are the things we do need to do systemically to make sure this person has, um, you know, the optimized surgical outcome. So, for example, some patients, particularly if they're the homozygous patients, SS patients, they'll get a preoperative red cell exchange transfusion, um, or um, they'll maybe on anticoagulation for their history of, of emboli. So. I'll ask the hematologist, do we need to manage their anticoagulation? Do they need preoperative exchange transfusion? Um, so they're very helpful on that aspect. Um, what we do find, though, in, 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 in just the epidemiology of the disease, a lot of the patients with whom we're operating are the hemoglobin SP patients and variant patients who so don't necessarily even have the systemic hematologic um, issues that a hemoglobin SS patient would have. Now that said, and they may not be under the care of the hematologist. Now that said, I do try to follow the kind of the same principles of sickle cell disease management that I can in all these patients. So I'll consult preoperatively with the anesthesiologist, make them aware of the patient's history of sickle cell disease, making sure the operating room is warm. Um, we know that sickle cell, disease, sickle cell pain crises are worse when the patient is cold uh, and the temperatures are low. I try to maximize their preoperative hydration, so they may have a, um, you know, a preoperative bolus of IV fluids before surgery. And definitely oxygenation is important. So these are things I communicate to the anesthesiologist ahead of time in the case and also through the case to make sure that the oxygenation is maximized in, in the patient. So just have to be very thoughtful about the overall systemic disease and, and as we're working <laughs> on, on the retina repair in the operating room. There's been a
0: lot of excitement about genetic therapy for sickle cell disease. What are their ophthalmologic implications of, of gene therapy? Yeah, you, know, you know,
1: the gene therapy is, is, is just really an um, exciting field for, for many diseases and has had some success in sickle cell disease. It really makes sense that you have a targeted yeah, gene mutation, that gene therapy would be, would be uh, helpful, promising treatment. So, gene therapy, gene editing, have been shown to be successful in patients with sickle cell disease. We don't as yet know how that impacts the retinopathy, but that's definitely an area ripe for future study. Um, You know, we were looking at things like end organ damage and, you know, after gene therapy, did the patients have decreased risk of stroke? Did they have decreased risk of renal disease? And we're really primed as ophthalmologists and retina specialists to be able to understand what's going on in the retinal vasculature in response to those treatments. So they're not as widespread as we would think and we would hope um, with gene therapy and some of the kind of the novel systemic treatments. Um, sickle cell disease at this point, unfortunately, affects individuals who are of lower income may not have as, as robust access to care as 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 others, and so kind of those types of therapies sometimes are are limited as far as the access to the patients getting them. So we don't see a lot of the patients with sickle cell disease yet getting the novel therapies, but. Um, when we do and as we do, it's important to understand. And I think we're really poised uniquely as the retina specialist to understand what's going on in the vasculature.
0: Well, thank you so much for this interview. It's a, It's a disease that's obviously been around for a long time, but it is dramatic how modern imaging and treatment has impacted this. And I really appreciate your time. It is my absolute pleasure. And I thank you for having me.